Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Esther, chapter 5. Esther, chapter 5. As we've seen in our study, what is striking about the book of Esther is what we do not find in this book. There is no mention of God. There is no mention of prayer. There is no indication of praise. There is no mention or quotation of scripture. And there is no evidence of particularly good people in this book. If we believe what Paul wrote when he said that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correction, and training in righteousness... Uh, we might well wonder what is useful for teaching and correction in this book. Consider that up to this point, we've gone through the first four chapters, no one has made a wise decision. Vashti refuses to obey the king. The king, upon the advice of others, decides to replace her. Esther decides to join the competition to replace Vashti. Mordecai tells her not to reveal that she is, in fact, Jewish, Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. Haman decides that he will exterminate the whole Jewish race. And then Mordecai threatens Esther to compel her to approach the king about this matter. The only good decision, I don't know if I would call it wise, but the only good decision that we have is when Mordecai learns of an assassination plot and he tells Esther who tells the king. And how do you go about making application? If I were to say to you, I want you to give a series of sermons or Bible lessons on the book of Esther, what would the application be? Wives, obey your husbands or you can be replaced. Hardly seems appropriate. Husbands, if your wife does not obey you, replace her. It's okay to sacrifice your virtue for a possible good outcome. In the case of Esther, she gave up her virginity, among other things as she entered this contest. It's okay to hide your faith. This is a bit tricky because, in fact, we have brothers and sisters who have lived in totalitarian states who have kept their faith a secret. How about this? You don't have to respect people in high position if you don't want to. Be like Mordecai and don't bow down to Haman. Or, be like Haman, it's okay to hate your enemy. And again, with Mordecai... Threats are an acceptable way to get what you want. I think we would all agree that these are not acceptable applications, but they all come from the book of Esther. To review a bit, a new character has come into the story. We've had Ahasuerus, Vashti, Esther, and Mordecai. Now we have Haman, the son of Hamadatha. He has been promoted to the highest position in the empire, and people are to show him proper respect. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But as we learn, Mordecai refuses. He would not kneel down or pay him honor. And the royal officials, and apparently he's one of them because he's at the gate with them, they're wondering why he does not obey the king's command. Well, Mordecai told them, oh, by the way, I'm Jewish, I'm a Jew. And so they wondered, is that... Is that why he doesn't do it? Is this like a Jewish thing? Is this a cultural thing? That the Jews aren't allowed to do this? It's against their culture? So they mention it to Haman. Uh, Apparently Haman had not noticed, but now he becomes enraged. And rather than just putting Mordecai to death, he plans to exterminate the Jewish people. This is in chapter 3, verse 6. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. By the way, just to remind you from last week, 
Mordecai is doing this for a reason we'll see in a minute. But his actions endanger all his people. This isn't a one-on-one thing. He's doing something he should not do and the consequences affect all his people. Why, why does Haman want to wipe them out? Why won't Mordecai bow down to Haman? Well, as we saw last Sunday, it's an ancient hatred that goes back almost a thousand years. When Israel came out of Egypt, out of slavery, they were attacked by the Amalekites. The Lord gave Israel the victory, but promised that this would not be forgotten. The Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. This assignment is given to King Saul, the first king of Israel, over 300 years later. He is to wipe out the Amalekites, genocide. And he almost does that, but he spares some, including the king Agag. And therefore, Haman who is the Agagite, not the Amalekite, because the Amalekites, for the most part, have been wiped out. Only the king, but he was also killed, they keep his name and not the name of the people. The three things that are important to remember here. This is why Saul, the kingdom, was taken from him and it was given to David, because he did not obey God in this matter. Mordecai is from the same family, the same tribe as Saul, and Haman is an Agagite. It is an ancient hatred. So what he plans to do is to commit genocide against Mordecai's people in the same way that the Jews committed genocide against his ancestors, the Amalekites. So he needs permission from the king. He tells the king there is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. He skews the information and then he offers the king 10,000 talents of silver to put it in the royal treasury. This is 60% of the annual income of the empire. It's a great deal of money. But before all of this, it is the key verse in this, in this book. It is in chapter 3, verse 7. Haman has people cast lots, or poor. Purim is the plural, to decide on what day of what month this genocide will occur. And it falls on the 13th day of the 12th month. The king says, fine, keep your money, go ahead and do this. I'll mention this now, he's going to mention it later, but Haman never tells the king who these people are. Or so it would seem. The king gives him his signet ring. The edict is sent throughout the empire. The people are to destroy, kill, and exterminate all the Jews, young and old women and little children. We are told that in Susa, where the king and the major players of the story are located, there, it was thrown into confusion. As I mentioned last Sunday, it's at this point that I begin to wonder who the author of this book is and what he or she knows. Maybe this person is an outsider, simply reporting information with little interpretation or explanation. And the reason I say this is because the day of the writing of the edict is the day before Passover. And that's not mentioned at all. It's not mentioned at all. Passover is the greatest miracle in the Old Testament. It is the Old Testament equivalent of Jesus' death in the New Testament, of him delivering his people. 
one would think if you're writing the story of Esther, this is pretty important. And yet, nothing is mentioned about it. It could be that the author didn't know about it. It could be that the Jews didn't know about it. They'd been away from the promised land for so long that they had forgotten about Passover. We're simply not told. What we are told is how they react. And Mordecai in particular, if you look at chapter 4, verse 1, when Mordecai learned of all this that had been done, learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. You'll notice in this entire book, but particularly here, there is not a word about prayer, about praying. Esther does not know, apparently, about the edict. She's in the harem. She doesn't get out much, doesn't hear about news from the outside world. She does know that Mordecai is in distress. And so she sends out one of the eunuchs, Hathak, to find out what's going on. And in verse 7, Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to put into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. For the first time it is revealed that Esther is Jewish. Someone besides Mordecai knows. Hathak, who is the eunuch, knows. And now Mordecai wants her to go into the king to plead for them. But she says, there is, this is dangerous. What you propose is absolutely dangerous. If you look at verse 11, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. She's like, I just can't go traipsing into the king. Everybody knows if the king doesn't call you and you go in, you can be put to death. And Mordecai now responds with his threats. There's a threefold thing here. Um, listen, you will not be spared if this extermination of the Jews takes place. Secondly, deliverance will come. And if it doesn't come from you, you still will die. You and your family's house will be exterminated. And thirdly, who knows? Maybe this is why you came to this position. Maybe this is why you joined this sex contest, this audition, and became queen to deliver your people. And she responds in verse number 16. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. It has been suggested, as we come to the book of Esther, that there are two conflicting or competing worldviews. The first one is of Haman, who believes in chance. And it is shown in casting lots. He believed that everything is a matter of chance. And he thinks on this basis he can, in fact, get revenge for what happened to his people centuries ago. Then there is the view of Mordecai. And this really stresses human initiative. So we find him threatening Esther, and we find Esther coming up with a plan. I would suggest to you that both of these worldviews, in fact, are wrong. They're not right as such. The reality is, behind the belief in chance, roll the dice, behind the belief 
that it's all up to me and what I have to do. The God of the universe, in fact, is in control. But the author of the book does not say that. The characters in the story do not say that. It is for us who read the story centuries later to realize that this is God's doing. One more thing before we continue. That's the matter of fasting. In this story, fasting is presented in two lights. I mean, first of all, there is the spontaneous, when they hear this news, they can't eat. I mean, how can you eat when you've heard such disastrous news? Okay. But the other type of fasting is what Esther asked for. It is a planned course of action. She wants all the Jews in Susa to fast. I don't want to go into detail about fasting. We've talked about it before. But I do want to point out several things. First of all, only one day in the year was commanded to be a day of fasting by God. That's the Day of Atonement. Secondly, in the prophetic books, we find out that the Jews have different days of fasting besides the Day of Atonement. And they are to commemorate the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the Temple, various things like that. And God is really not impressed with these fasts. In Zechariah 7, ask the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned on the fifth and seventh month for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? God didn't ask them to fast. This is something that they did. Obviously to show grief, but are they also trying to win God's favor by fasting? In Isaiah, this is before the exile, Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? In other words, look, we've, we've, we haven't eaten. Haven't you noticed? Because we haven't, you're supposed to do whatever it is that we want. As we've seen before, I would suggest to you that fasting is something in which, in the place of eating, we pray. It isn't simply that we deprive ourselves of food. It is that in the time that we would be eating or even preparing food, we spend that time in prayer. But there's not a word of prayer in, in this book. So it seems that prayer is something, or fasting is something that they're trying to do in order to win their, their case. Chapter 5, Esther Acts. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. It's a risky move, but we all knew that. Esther dresses in royal robes to show that she is, in fact, the queen. But this is not an automatic entrance. This does not necessarily mean the king will let her come in. Verse 2. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. The king is pleased to see her. More than that, he is pleased with her. This is the Lord's doing, but this is not even hinted at in this story, in this book. He shows that he accepts her. He wants her to come in by holding out the royal scepter, and she touches it. Verse 3, Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given to you. He wants to know what she wants. And there's a hint that he knows something's wrong. What is it? What is it, Queen Esther? He makes it clear he will give her what she wants, even up to half the kingdom. And this is not literal. This is a conventional expression that we find to show the generosity of the king. I will give you whatever you want. Verse 4. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. 
Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asked. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Several things to notice. First of all, Haman is invited. Boy, you didn't see that coming. Um, Secondly, the king refers to her as Esther, not Queen Esther. Earlier it is Queen Esther, but there is, I think, a certain intimacy here. And her request is not necessarily a banquet, but a banquet the next day, and then she will reveal what it is that she wants from the king. She wants to know if she has the king's favor. She's not just going to blurt out, this is what I want. She wants to know if she has the king's favor. But it is interesting, and again, this is God's doing, though there's not a hint of it, at least in the text. It allows for two events that happen between banquet number one and banquet number two. Look at verse 9. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. Why not? But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. See, all the good he felt from being with the king and the queen to eat with the queen disappears when he sees Mordecai. And again, you have to ask, what is wrong with Mordecai? He is not only disobeying the king... He is putting his people in danger by refusing to obey the king. His actions affect others. Verse 10, Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he elevated him above all other nobles above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. I must tell you, for all the strange things in the book of Esther, I find this quite strange. Does one normally call one's friends together to boast about wealth and family and honor and position? Hey, everybody, come over. I want to brag for a bit. He has ten sons. We'll find out later in the book. Everybody knows he has ten sons, and yet he wants to brag that he has ten sons and that he's been given the highest position. Verse 13. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting in the king's gate. Haman's insecurity is seen in his boasting, I think but also the fact that these things do not give him satisfaction. They're canceled out by one Jew, by Mordecai. Verse 14, His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows built 75 feet high and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the gallows built. This suggestion to me really reminds me of chapter 1 when Ahasuerus throws a fit because Vashti won't come in and now all his advisors are trying to placate this petulant child because things haven't gone his way. And they tell him exactly what he wants to hear. Except instead of a contest for a new queen, what we have now are gallows to be built to kill one Jew. 
But as it was with Ahasuerus, now it is with Haman, he is delighted. He's so happy. I'm thinking, probably shouldn't be of Wallace and Gromit, and just the, just the delight. He's just so delighted. So they built the gallows that night. Something else is going to happen first, though, and this is chapter 6. As I read this chapter, although it is not mentioned, can we not see the hand of God at work here? And do we not see pride coming before the fall? Verse 1, That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. Just a side, this is a bit self-centered, isn't it? You know, let's, let's read my diary. Let's find out all the wonderful things I've done. It was found recorded that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the, the king asked, what, shall, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? It's me. The king's talking about me. This is about me. So he answers with that in mind. He answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes, let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home, his head covered in grief, and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Haman comes to the king to say, I want to kill this guy. And the king says, I want to honor this guy. Okay, this is not how Haman saw this playing out. And his wife and his friends at least see the handwriting on the wall. You cannot stand against him. He, you will come to ruin. And in chapter 7, this is what we see. Verse 1, So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. 
Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. By the way, you'll notice this language is from the edict to destroy, kill, annihilate. It's like, you know, if it weren't genocide, I wouldn't bother you. Because if we're going to be sold as slaves, it's not the end of the world. But this might be the end of my people. Verse 5, King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who dared to do such a thing? Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. In his mind, Haman knows the king has already decided against him. He has to choose between Esther and Haman. He's going to choose Esther. Haman knows that. It has gone against him. His only hope is mercy from Esther. Verse 8. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. That's how they ate. They would recline on couches. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's head, or covered his face. This, by the way, is a Persian custom. Someone is going to be executed... Something's put over their head. He's dead. He's a dead man. Okay. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallow 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Things did not turn out the way that Haman had planned. But the story isn't finished yet. And yet we can see the hand of God in the events that are narrated here, even when he is not mentioned. What is the application? What do we take home with us today after looking at this passage? I would suggest to you that the story of Esther is more like our story oftentimes than we care to admit. That we go through our lives oftentimes making unwise decisions as Mordecai and Esther did. And yet God is gracious and things work out. But this isn't the way we're supposed to live our lives. Things will in the end work out for Mordecai and the Jews. They will be spared. Um, Things work out for Esther. But this does not justify anything that they have done. It doesn't justify her entering this contest. It doesn't justify Mordecai telling her to keep her Jewishness secret. It does not justify Mordecai's disrespect and disobedience to the king. None of these things are right. But if we would look at our lives, we we make mistakes. We blow it left and right, day after day, and yet God is gracious. But are we like Esther? Are we like the book of Esther? Not a word of prayer because we're not praying. Not a mention of God because he's not in our thoughts. 
It's only when things get really desperate, perhaps. But even here, as desperate as things are, they, all they can think to do is to fast and then come up with a plan to invite the king to a banquet. I would suggest to you that we are far more like Esther and Mordecai than we would care to admit. We make decisions, we make choices. Prayer oftentimes is not involved. God is not in our thoughts. And yet God is almighty, mighty and merciful. He is gracious and he spares us. He delivers us. But that is not an excuse to live the way that we do. We must be people of prayer. We must be people whose thoughts, at the center of whose thoughts is God. That God is in fact in control. Of all the books I think in scripture, Esther is perhaps the most modern. It reflects so much of the way God's people live today. These are God's people in exile. They don't go back to the promised land. They're really happy where they are. And God is not in their thoughts. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess that far too often we rush through life day by day. And you're not in our thoughts. You're not in our speech. Even when we make really unwise decisions, by your grace things turn out. Still, in some ways, you're not in our thoughts. We are grateful that you watch out for your people, that you are merciful, that you spare them as you spared them in this time of Esther. But may we be people of prayer, people who acknowledge to themselves and to others that you are in control. This is your world. no matter the consequences of such a confession. May we be like the three Hebrew children who were willing to be cast into the fiery furnace knowing that you could deliver them that even if you wouldn't they would not bow down to the idol. In many ways we are like Esther and Mordecai and the Jews. We are in exile. We're waiting for your Son, the Lord Jesus, to come back, to take us, to be with you. But as we are in exile, may we not forget who we are. Your people. People of prayer. I thank you that you brought us together today. I ask that you would keep us on this hot day through this week. May you be at the center of our thoughts. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.